0: Welcome to this Emtec Access podcast. At Emtec Access, we offer a complete global market access service from strategy through to implementation. In the UK, all our work is underpinned by authentic NHS insights. Our in-house experts work closely with a national network of associates who occupy strategic, operational, and clinical roles within the NHS. Leaders in their field, their knowledge and experience helps Emtec Access to be as close to the front line of care delivery as possible. Please subscribe to the podcast or follow our LinkedIn company page for more information.
1: Today I'm, I'm delighted to be joined by Ellen roll who's the programme director for the Gloucestershire Integrated Care System. Um, author also of the recent NHS Clinical Commissioners paper, Systemata- Systematisation of Medicines Optimization. That's not easy to say on a Friday afternoon. Um, Ellen's worked for the NHS since 2003, holding a variety of senior positions in commissioning and provider organisations. She holds a master's in health economics and policy and currently sits on two national committees for NICE. Um, prior to that, uh, Ellen worked in the, as a civil servant in the Cabinet Office and in the private uh, sector in financial services, so has a really good appreciation of all things healthcare and all things value, which we'll get stuck into now. Ellen. Welcome. Thank you for Hi. joining me today. <laughs> Hopefully that, <laughs> that intro has done you justice. Um, Thank you. Really looking forward to a chat today. So, so as a starting point today, uh, could you just introduce yourself briefly? What does your role of program director in ICS mean and, and what does the system itself look like?
0: Thank you for that introduction. So my role at the moment is one that's actually in transition because obviously we're responding at the moment to the upcoming legislation creating integrated care systems and integrated care boards. So I have a kind of double role at the moment being a director of transformation in a clinical commissioning group. Um, Obviously clinical commissioning groups will cease to be Um, at the end of March and we will become formally the integrated care system and as you've said I'm also a programme director for the integrated care system so I hold a kind of strategic role in the system but I'm also responsible for a lot of the work of setting up the new integrated care structures um, the transition programme as we call it um, both sort of designing how the ICB will work um, and how we will relate to other parts of the system. Hence, um, I was able to apply that um, into the report that you've mentioned that I've recently written, which is in part seeking to capture the legacy of medicines optimization working clinical commissioning groups, but also then to start to think about some perspectives of how that might be taken forward into the new context of Systems, using that lovely word as you said, systematization. Um, it was actually an NHS England's word, I must say. I didn't make that one up myself. Um, but that's very much the business of what they're thinking about at the moment. How do we systematize into the new integrated care systems the way that we work around key issues? Obviously, in this case, medicines optimization.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. So I'm I'm, I'm taking from that systematization then is. It, going to be applied across the piece it's not just the medicines but then it's it's you know all elements of care is that right yeah
0: i think yes it's the way that we need to think about transformation in the future nhs and i think although um it might sound complex all it's really saying is it's about all parts of the nhs working together and probably people who don't work in the nhs would think well why don't you just do that anyway um, but I think that over the history we've had since the kind of, oh, it's been quite a long one, really, around kind of payment by results and foundation trusts and setting up separate commissioning and provider entities, you had much more of a kind of quasi market competitive environment within the NHS where people weren't necessarily always completely aligned in the objectives that they were seeking to achieve at the organizational level. And of course, the NHS is really just a big collection of lots of different um, organizations with the NHS sort of brand over the over the top. Um, And so this is really saying that in future we should all work together in aligning the incentives in a different way Um, and so yes it does apply across all kind of areas of care. I would say that we don't always know what that will mean yet so obviously the thinking's quite early Um, but what we were seeking to do here is to start to think about what how that could work in practice. So what would the components of a systemized approach to medicines optimization look like? And I think some of those um, components are just generic ones that you could apply. You could change the title from medicines optimization to you know whatever you wanted really. And things like having one team that worked together in a collaborative way across the system would apply, you know, having joined up digital and data would apply. They're not unique to this area. Although I think there are aspects of our report which probably are more specific to um, medicines and and some of the historical issues we've had um, around medicines optimization and how we might improve on that in the future.
1: Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. We'll we'll come back to the the systematisation piece shortly. But you you mentioned ICBs, which I'm sure is one of several acronyms that we'll we'll wheel through this afternoon. Could you just give a bit of a window into how the systems develop and, and some of the sort of structural stuff and the decision making processes that are going on?
0: Yeah, and it's um, happy to. I mean, it's really early days with some of that. But just so people are clear, because there is a huge amount of um, acronyms that we talk about in the in the NHS. Um, and you must stop me if I use any others without explaining them. But um, we have so an integrated care system will be obviously all the partners who work within a particular geography. and. Across the country, those geographies are not are not all the same. In fact, some are really quite different. So the system that I work in, Gloucestershire, is one of the smallest ICSs. It's less than a million population. The boundary is um coterminous with the CCG boundary as was, and we have a one-to-one-to-one relationship. So we have one acute hospital that Gloucestershire Hospitals Trust that serves our county. We have one um, local authority, albeit it's a two tier local authority. We have one health and care trust, which is an integra- integrated mental health and community trust. And our boundaries are all the same. Now, you have other um, integrated care systems that will cover huge geographies of kind of four million people where they may be incorporating three or four CCGs that used to exist, multiple local authorities, multiple trusts. So the size and scale of different ICSs is is quite different across the systems in the country. And um, we then have um, at the top of that integrated care system, we have what's called an integrated care board. So the ICB, and that will um, be a part partnership board from those different memberships across the um, system. Now, it's not a representative board. So what I mean is you don't have to have every single member organization sitting around the table. So in Gloucestershire, we probably will have every single organization sitting around the table, but that's a lot easier to achieve because there's four of them. If you are one of those really huge areas that I talked about, and there's maybe 20 organizations, you obviously would struggle not least to sort of manage and have a sensible conversation at that board. Um, So there will be that partnership board at the top, and it isn't necessarily a representative model, but it will have a flavour of the different parts of the NHS. And you will have levels of delegation. So people will then have um, place, which is the name for it we're using in the NHS, which in some of those really big ICSs is, is going to be a similar footprint to the original CCGs and they will then be kind of localities within the ICS. Now in a really small one like Gloucestershire, uh, I might sound a bit confusing, but probably how place is defined in the national architecture is coterminous with our ICS. So Gloucestershire is probably a place and an ICS, whereas in say West Yorkshire and Harrogate, you've probably got four or five of them. And depending on the size, the resources may or may not be then delegated down to place. So you end up with ICSs being reasonably, again, different at that t- top level. The way I would describe it in a kind of simplistic way is that you could think of it as like a thin ICS, where what you're taking up to that ICS level is relatively minimal and you're delegating a lot down, or a thick one where actually most of the kind of business is being done at that ICS level because and very relatively little is delegated to place. And then we also have an integrated care partnership that will sit alongside the integrated care board. And that will be another board, which includes then wider partners like local authorities and so on. And that I think candidly is a bit of a fudge, whereby the NHS wants a point at which it can hold um, itself accountable for the money. So effectively resources are delegated to the ICB. But it wants a board where it also has local authorities and others who are maybe not directly accountable. So that's why I think we've ended up with two bodies at the top of ICSs. Um, And our job at the moment is just defining how we will incorporate all of the CCG statutory functions into that ICB with that new partner membership model. Um, For people who like to talk about governance, there's a lot to think about there. Um, and structure all of that and manage that relationship with an ICP, which then also has a relationship with the Health and Wellbeing Board. So quite a bit of complexity in the structure that we're designing and setting up at the moment. But the view is that at least all those NHS partners for a geography will be together with a shared set of objectives around managing resources in the best interest of their population.
1: Yeah, and, and it's interesting you talk about the complexity for you, whereas actually yours is quite straightforward. And I guess you, you go to other parts of the country and be very different. And and one yeah. thing I think that our, our audience sometimes, you know, or, or all of us I think, struggle with is how much is this, a, you know, a a, a a nominated or a template architecture? You slot your own bits. And I think what we're taking from from what you're saying is that actually a lot of this is kind of bottom up, and you've got the, you know, almost the the acronyms that you you need to conform to but actually you've got to think locally about how does this work for us and and one mm-hmm. place or three mm-hmm. places or, or what have you and then the, the thick or the thin you know that there's going to be a huge amount of variation i guess between the 42 isn't there
0: yeah there absolutely is and i think there is that ambition around kind of local determination in the way we set it up i mean there are some standard roles that we are required to have, but they are very a very small number. Um, so some members of the integrated care board will be set nationally. So obviously every ICB will have a chair and a CEO. Um, and then there are just a very small number of standardized roles. So each ICB will have a chief medical officer, a CMO, and a chief nursing officer, a CNO and a chief financial officer, so a CFO. And then there are a couple of kind of um, recommended, but not um, specified jobs around um, chief digital officers and chief people officers. But beyond that, there's very little in the way of direction about what those boards might look like, what the key roles might look like, You know, different systems have very different views about that, I think, based on their legacy. So in Gloucestershire, as I say, being a relatively small system, and I would say having been working at it for a while, we have a reasonably mature partnership. And so we have got, for example, elected members and people from our local authority on our board now, we wouldn't really have needed an integrated care partnership. And at one time we were trying to test if we could just run it as one thing or merge it with our health and wellbeing board to kind of cut down on the number of committees. Now we can't do that because they've been given distinct statutory duties in the legislation, but we are going to try and do things that give us economy of scale. Like um, in fact, I think the health and wellbeing board is most like the ICP. So we might try and sort of run them in the same session, you know, you open one, you start it, you finish it, you say, and now we're going to be the ICP, and you carry on. And we've been taking legal advice on the opportunity to do that. Um, But I think for some of those other systems, like some of the ones where the Secretary of State only determined some geography, so there were some boundary changes, they were only determined relatively recently, you've got areas starting from complete scratch in terms of there's a new geography they're incorporating into their ICS. So you can see how that would be a much more complicated yeah. journey to go on than one where you kind of already know what your membership would be and how it would work.
1: Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. It's gonna be a, a long journey for a lot of a lot of places, isn't it? So, so, so thinking specifically about your role in, within the ICS, it's it's heavily linked with delivering value across the system um, in a in a whole host of different ways. Can you help us to understand a bit more about perspectives around value and how that's that's evolving?
0: Yes, yes. Um. So, again, I mean, I it's it's interesting because, um, in terms of sort of sharing learning, then I think some of the terminology that we use in our system may not be the same as other systems, but I imagine quite a bit of the philosophy would be very similar. So in Gloucestershire, we um, work in a way um, called, largely around value, around something called the clinical programs approach. So we have pathway networks that go across our system. So we encourage, so this is where I'm saying we were reasonably systematized, to use that word already. Um, in Gloucestershire. So those are kind of network groups, if you like, where we put together clinicians working in in all different sectors. So people, primary care, GPs, um, community, mental health, depending on the relevance, um, acute care consultants. We also have around that table um, patient and public representatives and kind of users by experience. And we support them with um, experienced kind of program managers and people who are good at informatics or finance and that kind of thing and then what we are we, we ask them to look at the disease area and so usually obviously those people are there because they have a specific interest in that so we have clinical program groups um, as we call those networks for a whole range of clinical areas. So we have a diabetic one, we have a circulatory one, we have a respiratory one, we have one for ophthalmology or eye health as we call it, um, MSK, pain as a subset of MSK and so on and so forth. And um, because that's a very distributed leadership model, you're not really restricted in almost how many times you can replicate that model because you're drawing on different groups of people each time. Um, Although, obviously, the thing that I quite often do get stretched in is having enough programme and expertise in the kind of informatics and finance to support all the things that they want to know. And so we then have a kind of theory of change model that says you pull in a number of different facts and figures and information and knowledge about your programme area. So that will include the, the use of resources, adherence to best practice Current performance, so we do link, not everybody does link transformation and performance, but we do, so is your service delivering a good waiting time standard? Is it meeting patient experience, objectives, you know, that kind of thing. Um, The perspectives from the kind of, we do sort of benchmarking, so we'll look at, um, we get things like the right care, where to look packs and national benchmarking data, although sometimes there's an issue with kind of data cleanliness and obviously the clinical voice. So you put all of that together and we say like, where are the opportunities to deliver increased value in that program? And, and that by that, I mean, better health outcomes for the pounds we spend. So that's an incremental improvement journey. You're spending X, this is the outcome you're getting. Can you increase that value within the program? So you're looking for You're interested in the outcomes that you can measure for that population. How do we do against kind of things like national audits? Um, So for some clinical areas, that's really easy to find. For example, if you are looking at the diabetes clinical program, you've got the three care outcomes and the eight care processes that we get measured on for diabetic care. That's a kind of national standard. Um, And for stroke, for example, we have something called the SNAP audit, which is a national audit of stroke performance um, across the pathway. Whereas for other things, you might be using more locally derived data. And then... um, you think they in the group, they decide what they're looking to target, so where do we feel that outcomes are poorer for our population, or there's an opportunity to save resources to spend them on something else? So we're not talking about i think it's always worth saying that when the n h s talks about savings, it's never talking about money to put in the back pocket; it's always about there's always a million things we could fund that we don't have the resources for, so we're thinking all the time, is there any waste or inefficiency or you know less good use of resources that we could redeploy on something better so it isn't necessarily something that's not valuable but there might be something else you could do which would be even better. Is Um, is there any ring
1: fencing Ellen? uh, So you're looking at a, a diabetes program or a circulatory program how does that work? Do, do you have a, a million pounds for that, and then you keep that money within there and shift it around, or is it okay? Well, if we can save fifty thousand pounds, maybe we'll put that towards stroke or something like that.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a really good question because one of the things that's really, really difficult in the NHS is sort of dropping the hat over the resources that belongs to any particular area. So um, I think as you said in my introduction, I'm a health economist by training. So this is sort of based on a theoretical model called programme budgeting and marginal analysis. And in the theoretical model, programme budgeting would say you get the budget for your programme and marginal analysis would say in the simplest form, you move money around at the margins to increase that value per pound. Now in reality, identifying the programme budget is really difficult and you could sort of disappear down a data black hole probably for years trying to absolutely define the programme budget for any of those given areas. But what you can usually do is um, identify areas which you think are amenable to change. So there are some things, that it's not exactly what you asked, but there are. they're not exactly ring fence, but there are things where it will be harder to extract costs and then areas where you know that there is a greater degree of need, um, and also areas where you think there might be lower hanging fruit. So what we tend to do is to encourage people to look for the things that they can think, they identify that they think they can change, and then to um, work at the margins, if you like, to focus on the marginal analysis and think about how they could change from one thing to another. So, Of course, if you think about the three main things that the NHS spends money on, which I've had summarised to me before, is beds, meds and heads. It's quite hard to get your money out of beds and physical buildings. It's reasonably hard to get your money out of heads and it's slightly easier to get, but not easy by any means to get your money out of meds or certainly to analyse it and think about how you might use it more effectively. Um, And even with sometimes with the sort of heads bit, it might be about using the staff you've got more efficiently or by freeing up their time, you can deploy them to do something else which would be more valuable. So um, it's not necessarily, again, it's not about taking it away. It's about using, recycling all the time that resource into something else that you could do, maybe through a cheaper version of the thing that you're doing. So to give you an example, in our eye health clinical program, part of our sort of status assessment was a range of things, but really severe waiting times around some of our lists for things like glaucoma follow up care and patients who were on roll forward um, follow up of kind of year plus. So they were meant to be seen at three monthly intervals and that had been rolled forward, rolled forward, rolled forward, and they were sort of 15, 18 months, possibly with a really significant detriment to their care. And to cut a long story short, we effectively were able, uh, we set up a contract with um, our community optometrists, which was a much cheaper model of follow-up care rather than hospital-based consultants, stratified the patients and for a big cohort of the lower risk people, they were then able to get the follow-up in the community at much cheaper cost per attendance. We didn't cut the consultants but we were able to achieve a significant performance and health outcome improvement by then redeploying that consultant time onto seeing patients more readily and starting to move down that waiting list. So sometimes your marginal analysis isn't about taking resources out. In fact, in that case, resources were slightly increased, but they were the performance was significantly increased um, and improved in terms of the outcome for the patients.
1: Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So, I mean, I, I think that the areas that you've talked about there, a lot of them are are, are areas that probably there's a lot of expertise within the system. Specialised commissioning is something that's coming down to to ICS level. So, is is that going to be managed in a similar way, or is that going to be kind of a, a bucket on its own because because of the nature of what's in there?
0: Yeah. Um. And and I would say that we don't have a huge amount of information about that at the moment. Um, We know that it will be delegated, but the last information that I heard was that there was a view that it would be delegated, but with national specifications and um, effectively service level agreements, in which case my observation would be it's not delegated. Um, We're just administering it. Because if you can't set the specification for the service um, or the local agreement, then you are just a kind of post box for for that. And I'm not necessarily saying that that that's a bad or a good thing. It's just, I would say it's just not delegated. Um, So I think at the moment, we don't know what that will look like and whether it will be delegated or whether local systems will still have quite a minimal role. Um, I would say that More So there are some things when you look at the specialised collection of services, they can be kind of divided into about sort of three tiers, I would say. And some are very much highly specialised orphan treatments, things that really should stay at a national level. And I can't think of a single ICS or if they were interested, I don't know why they would be, because there would be very little benefit in taking that into local commissioning. I think there's a sort of middle much more regional tier where you could see some benefit in ICS's having more involvement but in in a networked model and I don't think that would be something that would happen soon but there is a cohort of services that went into specialized on the last transfer and came out of local services that would probably be better if they were more integrated particularly for example around cardiac care and cancer care. So they're relative, so most hospitals deliver them, they're not really highly specialized and there would be benefits from integrating that more closely into local commissioning. So I think we can list a set of things that we think were the opportunity there, we'd have a lot more appetite to take delegated for than some of the other things on the list if you sort of mean.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Thank you. Um, so we'll, we'll, we're going to stay on the subject of medicines um, and, and move on to your paper, which uh, I know everyone's keen to hear a bit of commentary around. Um, just as a, a bit of a headline, I suppose, you, you, obviously, medicines optimization is something that m- most people will be familiar with in the audience. And, and it's been characterized in certain ways. So could, could you just kind of give us an outline of the brief and, and the objectives of, of the task you were setting and pulling that together?
0: Yeah, so um, so it was something that, what what was, so I guess just thinking back to when we decided to write it, it was um, not necessarily, we weren't set it as a brief by anybody. It was our thought. Um, so you, I'm not sure if people are aware of the kind of, the NHS Confederation and NHS Clinical Commissioners and the position it has. So NHS Clinical Commissioners is a membership organisation for um, all clinical commissioning groups in the country. So it's a kind of, yeah, it's a membership body is the best way of describing it. it. I suppose it would be like the ABPI for some people who'd be listening on that call is NHSCC and it's part of the NHS Confederation. It's independent and all CCGs are members of it. I've been involved for quite a long time with NHSCC in a variety of ways with my interest in medicines. um, And I represent them on a number of key national forums, including things like the Medicines Value Programme Board and um, so on. So we were aware of work that was going on at the national level around starting to think about the future of medicines optimization in integrated care systems, particularly using this terminology systematization. And so we wanted to put, I suppose, sort of put our all in really, if you like, (laughs) in terms of both having an opportunity to capture the legacy of um, CCGs, which we thought was really important, given we think CCGs have done a lot of good work, um, and then to put forward a perspective to um, inform ICSs of what we thought the le- the lessons learnt were from the experience of um, CCGs to date and people starting to work in an integrated way. So we, came up with that idea ourselves and kind of designed the approach. Um, So myself and working with um, some of the people from NHSCC. So obviously I co-authored it with Ed, who's um, one of their policy leads. Um, but it was something we really generated ourselves in terms of thinking it would be good to capture that learning and to be able to inform the debate in the future, rather than CCGs kind of just sort of fade away and no one really record a lot of the great work that's going on out there. So we did a number of things to pull that together, um, including sort of desk research, looking at some of the literature, But then pulling together the most important part was pulling together focus groups of people from across the country who are leading medicines optimization in their systems um, and in their CCGs. And I chaired that series of focus groups and we pulled out those themes, which is what forms the recommendations highlighted with some case studies um, from again from people who came and spoke at those focus groups. And um, we tested it with various people before publishing that. And we intend as well then for the Confederation to host a learning event, probably in the new year, um, to again, sort of go over some of the learning and to try and launch that into the integrated care systems. Um, And one of the things that the Confederation do, as all I think a lot of membership bodies do is they're interested in the kind of reach and interest that different pieces of work they've decided to do have got and the feedback we've had is that this has generated a huge amount of interest actually and has been really um, accessed a lot of times by people in senior decision-making positions um, in NHS England and so on which I think is hugely positive and it shows that people were interested in the kind of thoughts of systems and people working across the country um to to deliver medicines optimization and the sort of lessons learned and how those can be applied to ICSs but there wasn't a mandate to do it we just decided to do it ourselves.
1: Yeah fantastic yeah and I, and I think something that our, our audience may or may not be aware of is is exactly what you've illustrated there that the clinical commissioners is is effectively the people that are doing the doing so it's not kind of a, a think tank or a policy group or something that that's commenting from the outside it's actually that that lived experience of this is what's good and this is what's worked and this was what, what we should keep mm-hmm. as well isn't it so in, in terms of the recommendations that you've come up with within the paper which do you think are most important within there
0: well i've just realized i've actually left Again. it upstairs so <laughs> as i came downstairs to get nearer the thing um So that would be a good test for me from my memory of writing it. Um, I mean, I think, gosh, what's the most important? I think probably integrating medicines optimization into the wider pathway work and the clinical agenda. So not seeing it as just the business of pharmacists or something that sits out to the side. but that if you really want to think differently about medicines it needs to be fully integrated into clinical pathway redesign. Medicines are not a standalone issue. Um, I mean there's a slight irony isn't there to ask pharmacists to be in charge of um, improving the use of medicines when the vast majority of prescriptions are written by doctors. Um, So if you don't involve them in the thinking, then you're unlikely to change the behavior and to change the practice in the ways that you might want to do so. So I think probably that is the most important thing that I would pick out of the report. Um, It was something that I felt myself, but had that came through really strongly as well. I think also, and sort of fitting in with that is the concept of the one team Um, So people working together across community hospital, obviously that's in line with ICS thinking, but people talked a lot about that and about how they had invested in developing the team, particularly working across. Now we've got all these different roles like the PCN pharmacist, so primary care network pharmacists, and um, you've got community pharmacy, obviously starting to think about things like rotational roles and how you really bring those together um so that you get that sense of that one um team even though people might have different bases mm-hmm. for their work i think that was that came across as really important um and then i think the thing that we really wanted to play back strongly to um the, NH, the sort of national level as well is that sort of i think i described it as a sort of virtuous cycle i think there's a diagram towards the end about what region can, regions can do, what national can do, what local can do, and that us also also getting a clear idea of our different roles, because I think at the moment that's sometimes quite confused, um, and that you get um, sometimes you know bilateral sort of price negotiations, what I would call quite transactional things happening at really local levels, which might be good because you get a a good price deal for a short period of time but actually is it a great use of time and if you had the purchasing power of the whole NHS I know this is reasonably controversial but um, I think those kind of transactional conversations could happen better at a national level Um, whereas Things that are really about how you embed good practice and work with the local clinical teams um, work much better at a local level where you've got actual identified leadership um, and a clinician who's going to take local clinicians with them rather than, you know, sort of delegating something from on high that then people may or may not sort of pay attention to. So I think it's about also identifying the right level of different actions and where they can be most effective um, for the future as well.
1: Yeah, thank you. And I mean, what you're talking about there really is making things work as a system. So really that word of systematization, it it is all about that, isn't it? One one, one of the recommendations that you've put in there that certainly has generated a lot of interesting conversations we've had is is around single national formulary. Um, And I know that you know there's there's lots of different perspectives on that could you just expand a bit on on the thinking around that as a recommendation
0: well and i think just to be clear we didn't recommend that there should be one we said it would be worth exploring if it would add any value and i must admit we deliberated long and hard about whether to even include it because it came out of one focus group it wasn't necessarily a theme in all four um, and it, it should be recognised that we wanted to be true to what people said. So and it, it was interesting that that came more. We had representative people from across actually all aspects of the NHS, so not just CCGs, although we were really interested in the kind of CCG legacy. So that came actually more strongly on the group. We had more members from acute um hospitals. um, So head pharmacists from the hospital sector. So I think in a way we almost put it in there as a bit of a provocation of a question, would that be useful or would it not? Um, And also I think you can see um, that there may be more cases for it with certain things than there are across the whole. I mean the other issue is that if you did that you could potentially create a bottleneck But then equally, the flip side is that we get lots of things produced lots of times over with lots of management effort and lots of local discussions, whereas sometimes the sort of do once and share would be better. So I think just, we did not recommend it. We said, should there be a conversation about what it would mean if you did it? And then could some of the benefits of that be applied in some way, Um, rather than thinking that it would be actually practical to try to do that. Plus, okay. politically, I don't think the appetite would be there anyway, because no um, government wants to say they have made a menu of what is and is not unavailable on the NHS at yeah, a national sure. level.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm, I'm what I'm taking from that is that there'll still be these levels of decision making, and, and a lot of it is is just kind of jiggling that around, I suppose. Um. Well, another mm-hmm. thing that that our audience is always interested in it's kind of implementation of guidelines so in terms of this piece around systematization and getting everyone working more cohesively do you see that having an impact in how guidelines are implemented
0: yes and i think um that's my point about embedding it in clinical pathways because um guidelines is a really interesting one because obviously nice not nice TA that's compulsory but nice guidance is um, discretionary effectively to the NHS and it does depend on local resources to what extent some of that is implemented or not and our experience is that you do need to think about the local conditions and the resources you have and to shape local guidance so you might start with national guidance but you apply your own specific conditions to that so certainly like for example in the work i described around clinical program groups we do define our own pathways and our guidelines around use of certain things but within reason so obviously not core um We might start with the nice guideline, and then we're maybe tweaking around the edges. Um, So I realise that that is complex when you're sort of looking from the outside in and thinking there's all these different areas and sort of how do we engage. But I think it will always be like that because the point of it is to be responsible, responsive to local needs Mm. and local conditions, and um, and that's why we need that flexibility really.
1: Yeah. Okay. So. the the idea of a decision being made at an ICS level that this is the guideline we're going to implement and then suddenly it's cascaded and everything is done uniformly across the whole system is is probably not quite how it's going to play out it'll be you know maybe 60 percent will be there and then there'll be a bit around the margins of of deviation
0: yeah I mean I think and your your audience people listening to this will understand this as well is that prescribers are individuals who work individualistically don't they so there is a degree to which they follow guidelines and there's a degree to which they have the freedom to practice their independent clinical discretion Um, and so It's a really interesting challenge when you're looking to get more conformity, if you like, or consistency in the way that you influence prescribing behavior. Um, This is one of the things I spent quite a bit of time studying and there is research out there that says that it is quite difficult to change prescribing behavior um, and different um, studies have shown it it can be quite uh, (laughs) impervious to change. And if you think about a GP and they are maybe the vast range of different clinical areas they're dealing with, they're not going to read every bit of guidance that's out there and follow a guideline. I think that's not really realistic. So that's my point about you might get something designed at the ICS level or at place, but the implementation and the leadership and why I think you need to be talking to the whole team and not just the pharmacists is, going to be um through that clinical leadership model and that's the thing when you said you know what's the most important thing in the report I think that that I come back to that because if you don't have that local leadership from the medical leadership you're not going to get the changes that you want to see um so you need people driving that and sort of educating at scale and often we don't have huge amounts of resources to do that ourselves in the NHS, but I think we do need to do that. Um, you know, the work I was doing around pain, um, and that was in part a prescribing programme, we didn't call it one, interestingly, um, but we, we have delivered probably over a thousand contacts of um, training around that across GPs, across pharmacists, across community staff, um, and more than once. Um, And we've incentivized people to take part in reviewing their patients. um, And you have to keep doing it. It's sort of like, you know, to change a habit is really hard, isn't it? You have to keep chasing that behavior change, monitoring the data, providing the feedback. So it's not terribly easy to achieve that that systemized um, response. So I think that's why you might, even if you design your guideline at a a higher level, you need the leadership at the local level to drive adoption um, and actually spread of the change that you want to see.
1: Yeah, fantastic. I'm learning so much from you today and it's fantastic. just to i suppose play play uh, play devils advocate for a minute what think about that independence of of behavior and and kind of the, the acceptance of that what happens if there's not a more systematic approach to to medicines in the future
0: so i think the risk is that we don't we don't give the very, we don't give the best to our patients. So because not each, if you leave it down to each individual to make their own independent decisions about everything, and that individual can't assimilate the best practice or doesn't know the sort of wider context and why would they, then you're not going to get the best outcome for the patient. Because if we come back to sort of full circle to what I was talking about earlier on about the kind of the theory behind the clinical program approach about best value, which is outcomes per pound spent. If our program group have designed, have looked at that pathway and said, if we use more of X and less of Y, there's more value and better outcomes for our patients. We don't implement that. And actually people just carry on using Y because they always did and they don't really know about X, then we don't maximize value. So I think we have a responsibility to do it because the things that we're asking people to do when we're trying to chase down is to improve um, outcomes for our patients. So, for example, around that opioids work that I was saying, we were taking people who were on, we could identify as being on actively harmful combinations of prescription medicines and they've ended up there because of you could say, is that just poor care? But often they've ended up there through a, a quite a complicated and convoluted journey. And maybe the GP who's ended up holding that particular sort of basket of problems <laughs> doesn't necessarily have the solutions to get out of it. Um So and actually things being used against the recommended way of using them you know doses too high combinations that we know to be unsafe and those guidelines are out there so you could say well why have people not just changed that well they haven't changed it because it's really difficult to change or maybe they don't have the time or maybe they didn't know quite what the evidence said about how bad it was for some of those people you know there's a whole host of reasons you could look at. But the group sitting in the centre, that clinical programme, they can look at it and say, we can see that is not a good outcome for the patient and then drive that across you know, our system. And we also, and when we were doing that work, we engaged the clinicians across the county more broadly when we had the training and we brought them in around when we do free up some of this resource, how would you see us spending it to a better effect for the patient? So I think engaging them in the way it could be deployed more positively, again helps to cement the this is why I'm making the change, if you still to me. Um so getting them involved in the whole circle. Um and a lot of people then, you know, they they said I well, I've you know, these people are the ones that I absolutely dread seeing on my list. I know this is not a good situation for them. I feel really exposed on, you know, I write this prescription, but I feel like again, without sounding overdramatic, someone said, you know, I write this prescription, but I feel like I'm going to end up in the coroner's court having to account for why I kept writing this prescription. I didn't really know what else to do. So they were, um, you know, hugely relieved to be supported and actually asked to say, no, it is right. You should be changing this um, and then we can help you. And and then we've given you backup and there's someone else who can help if you have a real problem here. So I think that... um, it's a bit of a long winded response to your answer, but I guess if you leave it all down to individual action, you never get that collective wisdom and then support yeah. to get the very best value for each of our patients, which is what we are at the end of the day trying to do. Yeah,
1: that's a really great answer. Um, we've just got a couple of minutes left. So um, how best do you think pharmaceutical companies and those in our audience might be able to support the NHS with the, the medicines optimization? in the future?
0: I think that, um, and I think I do see more of this actually, because I sit at the, um, I said, the Medicines Value Programme Board. So some of the work that's been going on in, on partnership, um, is happened through that. I think Inclisiran is public now, isn't it? So I can mention that it's been in the news. Um, so I think what I've seen is, Engagement and partnership working in trying to think about a kind of whole pathway. So that fits with what I've been saying about I think the value proposition needs, and not always possible, I know, but where possible, it needs to be grounded in thinking about that kind of the context of the patient. So um, I think where where products are sort of amenable to that, if that can be expressed, then I think that helps with the sort of work that we're trying to do to think about, you know, sort of the Holy Grail with some of these things is I want to improve care and spend less. You know, those are the opportunities we're always looking at, uh, looking for, aren't we? So, you know, that was the perfect thing for some of my living well with pain patients. Like we were spending a lot and they were not, feeling good. <laughs> so we've managed to spend less and improve their quality of life with some of the things that we've done. Now um there are other ways we can do that if we can optimize care. Um, because we know there's quite a lot of waste. There's still I think can't remember it's on the top of my report. If I had it I could tell you, but I think it's six percent of all hospital admissions are known to be from you know poorly either um, interacting drugs or non-compliance or whatever. So ways we can be thinking about, um, you know, whether it's tools that help with compliance, ways of thinking about how we um, can deliver greater stability in the patient's medical condition. I know I was sort of thinking off the top of my head about sort of generalizable things from different products I've thought about um, or some of the preventative things. I think that's where there is going to be interest Um, and also coming to the table to have an honest conversation about um, sort of price negotiations and things like that, which I know again some are more up for doing than others and i understand why that would be but i think that they want you know people want to have a conversation now um more this would probably be more at the national level where i think some of that transactional conversation is actually better placed but um can we link um pricing to outcomes um and you know actually see the value come through um, and align in that way. Um, Again, it's sort of easier to say that we want that. It has to be realistic about what you can measure because um, linking pricing to outcomes is quite difficult. I sometimes think that our, models in things like our nice TAs and um and so on are, are reasonably optimistic um so again I think we just need to be realistic about that um we can't expect people to price something in that they can't necessarily expect to be able to evidence it has to be fair both ways I think
1: yeah absolutely yeah thank you Ellen so much we're gonna have to call it call it a day there I'm afraid but um, yeah certainly I could go on all afternoon so thank you very <laughs> sorry much sorry
0: about the tech issue <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's alright no problem at all it's uh, the perils of this job is that we, we have that sometimes but thank you again so much for joining me this afternoon um, for everyone else at home thank you for, for tuning in I hope you've enjoyed that um, if you want to hear more of the NHS insight that we bring uh, please get in touch um, we as a, an agency cover everything from global strategy and to customer communication. And all of our all of our uh, work includes the insight that we get from our NHS colleagues. So please get in touch, info at mtexaccess.co.uk uh, if you want any more insight from us. Uh, I'm going to be back on November the 19th, where we'll be having another look at the mechanics of how the NHS is changing and what's really going on at a place level uh, in how systems are evolving. So look forward to seeing you then. Thanks again to you, Ellen, and have a good weekend, everybody.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe for future episodes. If you'd like to find out more about our work with the NHS or how we can support your market access strategy, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk.